0: Uh, shortcuts are the snare of the impatient, aren't they? Just ask any driver who's been running late or stuck in traffic, how often have we made that terrible mistake of ignoring the sat-nav directions to go down some kind of other route and only to find that Well, a tractor slows you down and doubles the length of the journey, or a dead end turns you back because that road that you thought was a road is actually a railway line. Okay? These things happen. Shortcuts are the snare of the impatient. It's a good principle to remember. It's not just true for drivers. It's actually true for Christians. God's word gives us some very great and precious promises. And it is the hope of the Christian to look forward to the fulfillment of tons of these promises. But it can be hard to wait for them, let's be honest. That's when we can sometimes look for shortcuts to his blessing. Whether that's personally taking something that we want instead of waiting. Or even in ministry. You know, my church ministry is just not growing the way I want it to grow. You know, I'm going to change the way I do this word ministry thing and try and grow it in another way. That's a shortcut to beware of. Sometimes we try in different ways to bring something God has promised for the future into the present and do it by our own means. And that is exactly what we see happening in chapter 16 and in 17, which tonight I'd like to tackle in two chunks. So hold on to your hats. It's going to be fast. Uh, Number one, uh, true faith takes no shortcuts. That's chapter 16. And true faith takes God at his word. That's chapter 17. First of all, then, true faith takes no shortcuts in chapter 16. Now, a shortcut is what Sarai and Abram took in verses 1 to 3, Sarai in particular. In case you missed it, by the way, in previous weeks, God had promised this couple, this childless couple, children. Twice. In Genesis 12, Genesis 15, that's the promise. But here's the problem. Ten years later, 75 years old, verse 1, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. You're meant to feel that as you read that first sentence. They're still waiting. And it must have been very, very hard for them. But Sarai decides then to take matters into her own hands and suggests what can only be described as a sinful shortcut. She gives Hagar, her slave, to her husband as his wife, a second wife. Now, that sounds completely bizarre to us, but it was customary in some cultures back then in the day. Barren wives gave slaves to their husbands as surrogates, and legally, because the slave was hers, the child born to that slave belonged to her. So she's taken a shortcut okay, to having children. Bizarre to us? Yes. To God, it's worse than that. It's sin. It's polygamy. And polygamy is not God's design for marriage. One man, one woman, lifelong, exclusive union is. Anything else outside of that is sin. So Sarai makes this terrible mistake by suggesting this shortcut. What does Abram say? Now, darling, no. No. I know this is really hard. Come and give me a hug. Let's talk about it and pray about it. We need strength to wait for God's promises. Does he say that? No, of course he doesn't say that because you've already read the passage. You know he doesn't say that. No, he is as passive as Adam in the Garden of Eden. Yes, dear. And off he goes. It's crazy. Passive. Watch out, men. Passivity is the plague of biblical masculinity. I'll just leave that there. And all the women said, no, don't, don't. (laughs) Don't. But look at the consequences. This is what we're meant to see from this in verses 4 to 6. The consequences of this sinful shortcut are horrendous. Hagar is pregnant. Is Sidai happy? Not in the slightest. She is jealous. You can imagine Hagar sitting there, you know, with her hands on her bump getting people to rub her feet, oh, wincing every time the baby kicks underneath the ribs or something like that, but Sarai is fizzing. She is not happy, but neither is she taking responsibility. She blame shifts, actually, as we often do when we feel guilt and conviction over wrongdoing, don't we? We try and blame someone else, then own up to it ourselves. But she blames Abram in verse 5. You're responsible for this. And actually, in a way, she's right. He is the head of the household. He should have done that arm around the shoulder. Let's pray for strength as we wait and insist on the waiting. But he doesn't. Now, friends, sinful shortcuts prompted by impatience never, ever make things better. They only make things worse and messy. The consequences of sin... Sometimes, and we see it in ministry, some of you know it in church family life, some of the things, the consequences of the sinful actions that we take just can't be undone in this life. Though there's grace, right? Always grace. But there are consequences. So let this even be a warning for us in terms of application. Be wary of taking matters into our own hands. We sin when we take matters into our own hands by virtue of the fact that we're taking them out of God's hands. But we won't sin when we put our hand in His, in trust. And amazingly, that is what Hagar does in verses 7 to 16. Ironically, here the unbeliever who shows true is the one who shows true faith. She's the one in chapter 16 who takes God at His word. He. God meets her in the desert through this uh, theophany, you know, an appearing, a manifestation of God called the angel of the Lord, meets her, tells her to return to her mistress, promises to bless her with a son, names him, and descendants, and the name is very important. Names are extremely important in these couple of passages. Ishmael. Ishmael means God has heard. Which meant, by the way, that when he was growing up, every time she called him in for his tea or said his name in some way in the future, she would remember something crucial. God hears. God hears us. But, funnily enough, in this very moment, it's not God's hearing that delights her. That will be for the future. In this very moment, it's God's seeing. He spotted her. He knew, he saw she was being mistreated by Sarai. He knew she had been mistreated by Abram and Sarai. It was the wrong action entirely. He sees her as she's heading home towards Egypt. And he stops her before she gets to the border to speak into her life. What grace. God speaks tenderly to her and in that moment it's his seeing that she celebrates. She names him. (laughs) She names him and she names the well there to celebrate God as the living God, the God who sees. Now living God, whenever you read that in the Old Testament, generally is an expression of the fact that every other God is a dead God and you're the one true living God. So it's an expression really of faith and for her, this was a kindness that God sees. God sees everything. God sees all. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, we're really glad you're here. You're welcome all the time. But I wonder how you, what you think about that, that Hagar considers God's ability to see her and see everything that she's done as a kindness. Indeed, something to be remembered. I don't think most people think about that positively. I think we're quite afraid even of what everyday people would think of us if they found out the secret things about us. We're just as likely then to be ashamed of those things before the God who exists, and he does. But when you realize how gracious God is towards sinners, that despite what he sees, he moves towards us in love and grace, showing undeserved favor, even to people like Hagar and to you and to me, then it's something to rejoice in. Sin's not something to be hidden away. The secret things that we don't want anybody to hear about are freely offered up in prayers and asking forgiveness from God. It's an encouragement to confess. So can I encourage you to do that? Inside the bulletin, you'll find a little prayer that helps you do that. If it's the first time you've ever done it, let us know. It's a glorious thing about God's. It's a glorious thing to turn away from our sin and the only confidence that we have that he sees and accepts is that he sent Jesus to die and to take the punishment for those sins 2,000 years ago. That's why we can come freely with fear, yes, but fear as in awe. There's nothing to deter us. What about you, brothers and sisters? This whole scene's a disaster, isn't it, in chapter 16? God sees impatient attempts to shortcut faith as sin. The attempts are wrong. The consequences are terrible. And Actually, I mentioned earlier, not just in the short term, but in the longer term too. As we read and progress through the book of uh, Exodus, that's the next book, Genesis. Maybe we should do that next. Uh, Genesis. The Ishmaelites often pop up as these opponents of God's people. Who are the ones that cart off Joseph? It's the Ishmaelites. Okay? Uh, But not just in the Old Testament, in history. Ishmael is widely recognized as the father of the Arab people and an ancestor of Muhammad himself. Sin has consequences. When you think of the blood that's been spilled, sin has far-reaching consequences. We should be afraid to sin. And avoid at all costs any temptation to shortcut in God's promises. Instead, brothers and sisters, God wants us to be patient with these promises, to trust him while we wait, even if it's hard, to live by faith and not by sight, to take God at his words. By practicing patience, but not only patience, by practicing obedience to all he commands. And that's what we see in chapter 17. True faith takes no shortcuts, but secondly, true faith takes God at his words. Now chapter 17 shows us again that God is gracious. He doesn't say, right, of Abraham and Sarai, that's it, I have had enough of these two, he speaks further words of promise to them. And even gives a sign, a reminder of his wonderful promises in order to strengthen and to bolster their faith. What kindness. He gives, God gives Abram two things in particular to help him take God at his word. The promise, a promise, and a sign. The promise, first of all, what's that? Well, it's what we've seen already. It's the promise of a family, children, millions of them, descendants after descendants. It's a repeat of the earlier promises of chapter 12 and 15, which have developed as we've gone along. It's of a people in a place with the one true living God as their God. Uh, Verse 4, if you look with me, as for me, God says, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. Abram, who is now to be called Abraham, is going to have a son, specifically through the one who is now going to be called Sarah, princess, from whom will come kings, and from whom initially Isaac will come, a son, the promised son. But notice that God does not just say As for me, this is my covenant with you, you'll be the father of a nation. He says many nations, not singular Israel only, but plural, more than just Israel. Now we know that Abraham through Isaac didn't become the father of many nations physically or politically, but one, Israel. So you may ask, in what sense does he become then the father of many nations? Sounds like it's something global, doesn't it? Well, you'd be right in thinking that. He becomes the father of many nations in a spiritual sense, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 4. The promise comes by faith, says Paul, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. What is he talking about? To Israel only? Not only to those who are of the law, that is the Jews, but also to those who have the faith, the faith of Abraham. He, says Paul, is the father of us all, as he writes to Jews and Gentiles. He is the father of us all, as it is written. Straight back to Genesis 17, I have made you the father of many nations. He's quoting. He is our Father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being the things that are not. It's glorious. If you want to dig more into Romans chapter 4, go back to Vimeo or the church website and listen to the sermon that Adam preached on this a number of weeks ago. But let me explain briefly from the very beginning, God had in view that Abraham's children would be the children of faith, people who believe God and are made right with him on that sense, and God would work out this great plan specifically by bringing Jesus into the physical line of Abraham, born as a Jew, who would be a physic, uh, would be a, uh, in, would be a, a man in the line of Abraham to be the saviour in whom all would believe, so that through faith in Him, Jesus, all become an heir of the promise that God made to Abraham right here in Genesis 17, thousands of years ago. It's incredible. As Paul would even explain more concisely in Galatians chapter four, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's children and heirs According to the promise. What promise? This promise and all the promises that were to come (coughs) concerning the Messiah, the King, God's promised anointed one, and all that comes through faith in him. You see, this is why Genesis 17 isn't just God promising to bless one man so that we can look back in history and say, oh, isn't that nice? Isn't God good? It's actually shown us how we all come to be blessed by God and how we all through faith have our lineage back to Abraham. It makes us look around at a church full of Gentiles, non-Jews, and say, wow, God actually does keep his promises. He must have moved with an awesome amount of power in order to make some, something like this, this bunch of people come together With a common confession of Christ as Lord, to be inheritors of this promise and the inheritors of the hope to come. Because God's not done. That's why we're making disciples still. It's incredible. All of this goes to show that God is as powerful as He says He is in verse 1. God Almighty. All things are possible for him. Nothing is impossible for him. So, God then, we see, has the power to keep his promises and even the personal integrity to prove that he will. He shows us that just in verse, in chapter 17. Now, what difference does that make to us? Maybe some of you here are wavering between the idea of following Christ or rejecting Christ in particular. You're, you may be exploring this with your friends. You may be been along to Christianity Explored. You're thinking about going along to Glad You Asked. What does this mean for you? I mean, the encouragement for you in this passage is dead simple. It is believe in Jesus. It's have faith. When you see the thread of Genesis 17 and where it's come from in Genesis 3.50. When you you see the way God's thread and the promise of salvation comes through Jesus and then to the nations, it's for us. So that we believe. And that's my encouragement for you tonight. Believe in Jesus and take a firm and intellectual stand on these promises. They're to you. Not just timeless nonsense, eh, outdated nonsense, but timelessly relevant. And what difference does it make to us as believers, brothers and sisters, who hear him make this promise and a million other promises in his words, promises of godliness, promises of joy, promises where we're called to stand up under temptation, promises that encourage us to have or help us to know that we would have the power to unite together as a family who can guard and preach the gospel. Power to read and understand his word. Power to use us even to lead more and more people to believe in God. He's promised us his power and help to do all these things. What he says he'll do. And that's why we should be encouraged to take him at his words. But, of course, God knows that we are weak. God knows that we are prone to forget these kind of things. We forget that we're meant to be living for Him and His glory, and we start to turn inwardly. We start to live for ours and our own. We know that. We know that we're forgetful. Surely we'd admit that. I mean, birthdays, appointments, tasks. I've got a head like a sieve at times. One Sunday, I, I actually put my iPad on the roof of my car as we got the kids in. I completely forgot it was there. I only realized when I got to Belford Roads, when I only remember it because I saw it fly off the roof, smash on the ground, and be run over by a car. It's a true story. That's, what I, that's how forgetful I am. I, I, I forget. You know, I can't tell you how many times I express surprise at something someone has told me, only to hear them say, ''Why are you acting all surprised? I've already told you this before.'' Now, for me, it's a bit of a bonus because I get to be happy at something twice, but to that person, it's an absolute irritation, okay? We need reminders. We need something to look at, something that pings and tells me, oh, I've got this to do today. Oh, I've got that to look forward to to today. There are things to look forward to and especially things we must never, ever forget. That's why God promises and provides reminders, A reminder to Abraham of this great promise that he's just made. A reminder that benefits us all. This is where he gives him not just this promise, but a sign. And it's the sign of circumcision. Now the cutting of the flesh on the male sexual organ was to be a reminder of the promise, as verse 11 says. But not just for Abraham it would be for everyone who'd be part of his family, for his children, his children's children, and even those outsiders, as the text explains, for those who wanted to be associated with him and included in the promise. Now, every time that ritual was performed, it jogged their memories. God is going to bless us. We're going to have offspring. Every time a mummy changed a boy's nappy, they remembered Every time a bloke went to the gents, they remembered. And especially every time a husband got into bed with his wife, there would be this reminder. Offspring, children, you're all smiling. Children, it's true. So think of what that meant to the people on the brink of the promised land, post-Exodus, to whom this was written, when all the obstacles were set up before them. They had every reminder. They had a sign that prompted this reminder in them constantly of a land to inherit and a people multiplying. Now the crucial question for us is in this is why do we not do this? Uh, After all, God calls it an everlasting covenant in verse thirteen. Well, thankfully, the New Testament makes this super abundantly clear for us, uh, which we're really glad about, of course, and uh, which which would make mission really hard. Yeah, what you should come to believe, believe in Jesus. Great, what do I have to do? Well, you have to. Okay, it makes it a bit tricky. But whether you read the book of Galatians or you read, for example, of the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, circumcision is not something that's required of us After the death and resurrection of Jesus and the institution, the the beginning of what Jesus called himself the new covenant, a new promise, a new age of promise. There's a new sign of belonging instead, a new initiation rite, a new oath sign, if you like. For us, it's baptism. It's baptism. Baptism is the reminder that you look back to as a sign that you're in Christ. In him, the spiritual progeny of Abraham, remember it's through faith, a child of the Father, through faith in Jesus Christ. And for us, baptism is the reminder that breeds for us an assurance because baptism, you see, is not something that an individual does. It's something that a church family performs on you. You're active in it, but you're passive in your activity. You're making the right confession, but is the church performing the act? It's the new oath sign that replaces the old one of circumcision. That's why Jesus explains that the first thing that we're to do with a new believer when they become Christians is to baptize them. Matthew 28 says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In saying that, Jesus just makes it the most normal thing to do when someone becomes a Christian to baptize them. Paul then explains how this works in Colossians chapter 2, and he's 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 getting non-Jews to think about their baptism in the very same terms uh, as circumcision practiced by the Jews, where he writes, in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. In other words, this is You have a circumcision, but it's different. It's not performed by human hands. So now we know we're not talking about physical circumcision. Paul goes on. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. In other words, Jesus cut your heart, not your flesh. Spiritually speaking, cut your heart with conviction and gave you faith to believe when Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, it's technical, right? But it's important. Paul is getting people to look back to their conversion as the moment their hearts were circumcised by Christ. Now, you might say, hang on a minute. He just said baptism. I know. The two are synonymous in the New Testament. You could go to someone and say, hey, when were you converted? And they could say, oh, I was baptized in November last year. And they mean exactly the same thing. That's why we can then look to our baptism, that reminder of what it was all about, an outward expression of the inward change in us a death burial and resurrection tangibly displayed to everybody to communicate what's happened on the inside what's happened by faith and an act performed by a church family endorsing someone's confession so that that person going through the water can have assurance as much assurance as they could possibly have. That means that every time a church baptizes a believer, we're reminding each other again and again and again, actually, of the great and precious salvation promises of God. That's what it's all about. Now, what then does a sign require? It's simple, obedience. For Abraham, that's what it was. That's what people who know and believe in God do. That's why alongside the revelation of God's might in chapter one, verse one of chapter 17, you have God calling Abraham to walk before him, what? Faithfully, be blameless. In other words, what I'm about to say, you've really got to do. Then in verses 23 to 27, what do you read? Abraham being faithful and blameless. He does it. He's circumcised. He circumcises people, he circumcises Ishmael, and then all the servants, the people belonging to his household. What is it that leads to such obedience? I mean, we know we have a frustrating tendency towards disobedience. We sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. But it's the knowledge of who God is, Lord Almighty. It's the knowledge of the blessings of obedience, the promises coming. And it's the knowledge of the warnings of disobedience as well, like in verse 14. The, the great and serious threat of being, and it God is careful to choose his words here, cut off from the blessing. Now some might say, hang on, Abraham doubted, didn't he? He laughed at God's. Well, it depends on what kind of laugh that is. Is it the, ha ha, I write kind of laugh? where it's an expression of doubt. Or one of those weird positive expressions voiced with negative words. Do you know these things? Like when something really good has happened in front of us and we go, that was wicked. No, it's not. It was really good. No, yeah, that's what I meant. No. Let's use words properly, friends. (laughs) Or no way as this negative expression of some positive feeling. What was it for Abraham? Well, actually, we just need to read our Bibles to find out. The answer's in the text, brothers and sisters. The answer's always in the text. Romans chapter 4 gives us this brilliant explanation of all that's happening here as he explains in verses 18 to 21. Paul says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be, without weakening in his faith. And naming his son, Laughter, would remind him of that faith. Every day he called him for his tea. And even when he led him up the mountain. What is it? What about us today? If true faith takes God at his word. If we have the promises of salvation, of sanctification and glorification, the new heaven and new earth to come, What is it for us? What is it for you if you're here again and you're not a believer? It's dead simple. Acts chapter 2 verse 38 tells us it's repent and be baptized. Every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and become inheritors. Have you? Take hold of this promise for yourself by believing in him, praying the prayer that's in the bulletin. If you're here and you are a Christian already, Are you demonstrating this faith that you profess through obedience? Have you been baptized? This is the covenant sign of the New Testament people of God. Have you? Do you have that new covenant sign to look back to to remind you of the great and precious promises that lie ahead? If not can I say, you're being disobedient. Don't let anything deter you. Don't let the fear of giving a testimony or the fear of what people might think of you, nor even the claims of a rite performed on you as an infant, deter you. Faith precedes baptism baptism for those who have said i believe and then are baptized those are the ones who can look back with confidence it's obedience that god requires jesus says if you love me you will obey what i command and that command pertains to this crucial sign that his promises are to us of salvation and sanctification and glorification of heaven and not hell. So, true faith takes no shortcuts. Take God at his word by being patient. And true faith takes God at his word, take him at his word by being obedient. Let's pray together.